Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California, and this is part two of our episode on NATO liberals and Ukraine. Enjoy. And then that leads us into the post-Cold War era, which uh, is going nice. to be some new stuff that we're excited to talk about. And I'm going to let Bob take it off with the post-Cold War policy of the person who was president when I became an adult. And is a, is, a, is a constant source of interest in entertainment, I guess you could say. I like to call him Slick Willie, but, you know, let's That's talk right. about William Jefferson Clinton. There's way more. Like, I had forgotten, you know, like I started reading this stuff. Like, there's a lot more to Clinton because, you know, it's dominated by domestic policy and, of course, the scandals and all that kind of stuff and just, you know, his craziness surrounding it. Um, but Clinton, uh, they had what was called the Clinton Doctrine. Uh, Clinton's eight years where foreign policy was kind of an afterthought, I think, in terms of the media often. But what you saw in Clinton's time were, was the kind of uh, introduction of what, what is called humanitarian intervention. Um, I know that, you know, I catch hell for this, but, you know, what is what is Putin's excuse for going in uh, to save the people of uh, the ethnic Russians, the, the ethnic Russians and denazify them and all that? That's humanitarian intervention. It's bullshit, but it's humanitarian intervention. That's what the U.S. did, and you saw that repeatedly in the Clinton era. Uh, you saw one policy Clinton uh, created, which was called enlargement. Um, you saw the United States get involved in an election in Russia and send anywhere between 6 and $14 billion to bail out Boris Yeltsin in 1996. Far, far, far exponentially more evidence of the U.S. role in Russian elections than there is of the chimera of, of Russian uh, interference in the 2016 election. Um, one element of Clinton that we do talk about that does get a lot of attention is uh, the international economic aspect of it. Clinton uh, put the United States into the WTO and was a signatory to NAFTA, two uh, very important transnational institutions. Clinton bombed the hell out of Iraq. Clinton bombed the hell out of Kosovo. Uh, Clinton made, and it's hard to do. And Serbia, this, and Serbia. And Serbia, and Serbia, yeah, in 1999. Made things in Haiti worse, which is always hard to do. Uh, sat by while there was a genocide in Rwanda. Uh, actually uh, was involved in Afghanistan. Uh, had attacks, uh, you know, looking for uh, bin Laden. And of course, when you talk about Hillary, remember he said, you buy one, you get both of us. Uh, we're also going to talk about uh, Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State and uh, was as uh, bloody and as ruthless as Bill, right? Um, I remember when Hillary Clinton was appointed Secretary of State, it's like, oh my God. Uh, but Clinton, there's a, there's a good piece that I would, would suggest you can read uh, by Mike Clare, K-L-A-R-E, and we've talked about him before. He's, uh, I think he's a political scientist, not a historian, but he really does good work. And he wrote a piece on the Clinton Doctrine. When did that come out? That was like, late when he was still uh, president, right? Yeah, Claire, and, Claire wrote that in like late 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I would, I would certainly recommend it. But he talks about the Clinton doctrine 
And the Clinton doctrine is it's the doctrine from NATO liberals, right? By the way, excuse me for my voice going in and out and the thing bobbing. This will be, I'm pretty sure my last podcast with a sling on. So we should be able to get back to normal next time. And I won't be so, uh, you know. It's uh, like, a, it's like, it's like watching a Stephen Bochco show though in the nineties. <laughs> that will be so discombobulated. Yeah. 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 You can, you know, I'll look better and you can, you know, be more handsome and I'll speak better and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but um, the Clinton doctrine essentially is based on a pessimistic view of the world, which says that, you know, the world is full of threats. Now, this is ironic, right? Because Clinton took over right after the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And in, in, in those years, 91, 92, 93, 94, uh, liberals were, were just ecstatic over what they thought was going to be a peace dividend. You know, what's the point of having this massive military budget if the Soviet Union is gone, right? Because that was the whole the threat, right? I mean, when you lose your main enemy, right? What's the point, right? If, if Frazier and Ali don't have each other, then, you know, their lives are much less interesting, right? And so everyone's saying, okay, well, we can dramatically cut the uh, defense budget now because the Soviet Union is gone. Well, that didn't happen. And in fact, as Michael Clare has pointed out, the United States went searching for enemies. Clinton has a big role in this, the, the war on drugs, even though the invasion of Panama and Noriega occurred under Bush, Clinton continued that. He didn't roll back the war on drugs, right? Just watch Miami Vice. You get you get the whole story there, uh, although that occurred during the Reagan and Bush years. Um, so Clinton is saying that's a threatening. It's a scary world out there, even though objectively the world was much less scary and threatening because the Soviet Union was gone. You just lost your main enemy. But they continued to say that um, you know the world is a scary place. There are threats all over the place. That's part one of the Clinton doctrine. Part two is the idea that the United States has to maintain international stability in conjunction with its most trusted allies, NATO. Clinton's a NATO liberal. No shocker there. And the third part says that the United States has to maintain sufficient military force to conduct military operations globally. I believe, in, and I might be wrong about this, they had what was called a, a fight, hold, fight policy. Fight on one continent hold on another policy until you won on the first continent and then fight there as well. So it's essentially a two continent policy, right? That's as interventionist as, as, as it gets, right? And, and what it says also, you know, NATO is supposed to be a defensive alliance. And what Clinton does is essentially say that these existing security alliances now uh, have to be ready to better support American expeditionary operations, which means offensive operations. So essentially what he's doing is saying that NATO has to be able to be ready to be more aggressive. Uh, the peace dividend was was a, a fantasy. It was a unicorn. There was no peace dividend. In fact, Clinton uh, said that uh, he wanted to increase uh, military spending by $112 billion, which at the time was what, 20, 25% increase. So it was a fairly substantial increase. Uh, and that would include new warships and cargo ships and all kinds of intent, uh, new equipment uh, for what they called power uh, projection. Um, they also wanted to convert NATO into a regional police force. They wanted to give NATO a larger role to play. Uh, Madeleine Albright, who we're gonna talk about again in, in a second here because uh, she recently uh, died and uh, we hope she uh, is restless uh, in her in, in her in her uh, afterlife, if there is one, right? Uh, but uh, Albright talked about rogue states, Iraq, right, uh, were a great threat to Europe, and she said they are as great a threat as the Warsaw Pact once was, which is utterly 
insane. And Albright said, common sense tells us that there is sometimes better to deal with instability when it is still at arm's length than to wait until it's at our doorstep. It's a preemptive intervention as foreign policy. Now, we saw that play out in Iraq, where uh, after the uh, first Gulf War, the United States maintained sanctions. Clinton ramped those up and also conducted uh, frequent, I forget how many bombing missions against Iraq. And Madeleine Albright was the Secretary of State uh, overseeing all this. Uh, and see, this is part of the Clinton doctrine where there are threats everywhere. You have to be preemptive. Saddam Hussein is as great a threat as the Soviet Union once was. And um, as a result of this, the United States imposed sanctions. Bill Clinton imposed sanctions on Iraq, which human rights groups estimated killed between 500,000 and a million people, most of whom were, uh, well, obviously not part of Saddam Hussein's inner circle. Children, people who were older, people who were ill, uh, they couldn't get chemotherapy drugs. It was a, an intense and immense uh, sanctions regime, much like uh, Iran has today or Cuba has had, right? And when, uh, was it Leslie Stahl asked, uh, was interviewed Albright, right? On 60 and, Minutes, yeah. Yeah, and you, you know, we have that, and, and it's worth, I think, seeing this. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Well, at least uh, Mal Albright brought diversity to uh, war crimes, right? Uh, yeah, that's just horrific and chilling, right? And that's, I think, something to keep in mind. That's that's what Madeleine Albright's a NATO liberal, you know, like yep. she's up there in the in the pantheon uh, with all of them too. Uh, so Clinton said, I mean, basically, the Clinton doctrine says that the best way to maintain stability is to fight globally. So even though, I mean, it's 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 like NSC 68 all over again, right? And this is after the Soviet Union's fallen apart, right? It's it's really insane. You know, they, they say, yeah, I mean, the communists were probably going to win the election in 1996 until the U.S. poured vast amounts of money into into Russia. Uh, but but essentially Clinton uh, and there's I'm going to quote at some length from a, a speech he gave in, in San Francisco where, you know, it's kind of enunciating the Clinton doctrine. The basic idea here is that. Clearly, there are areas that are of greater interest to the U.S., like Europe and Japan, Western Europe and Japan. But in order to protect those areas, the United States has to combat enemy forces or alien forces all over the world. So Clinton, uh, and this is uh, right before he decided to bomb Serbia, says uh, this is a speech in San Francisco. It's easy to say that we really have no interest in who lives in this or that valley in Bosnia who owns a strip of brush land in the Horn of Africa or some piece of parched earth by the Jordan River. But the true measure of our interest lies not in how small or distant these places are or in whether we have trouble pronouncing their names. The question we must ask is, what are the consequences to our security of letting conflicts fester and spread? We cannot indeed, we should not do everything or be everywhere but where our values and our interests are at stake and where we can make a difference, we must be prepared to do so. It's an extraordinary and vast statement, putting the US military capacity uh, potentially in play everywhere. You know, I, it's interesting thinking back on the 90s 
when you would see the media, the media was very much all of the theater of what was going on. It was the scandals of the administration, everything from Whitewater to Monica Lewinsky. But then also the media at the time was focused on all of the other sort of like theater that was going on in the country, like the OJ trial and lots of, you know, celebrity news and gossip and all of that. And when you did see media about foreign policy, it was about how, you know, the genocide that was happening in Rwanda, or it was about the Serbs attacking the Bosnians or the or the Kosovars. And so it's just like a sort of important thing to remember is that like a lot of the way people see Bill Clinton is they actually see him as being like a good, you know, humanitarian president doing like humanitarian interventions. But it's, it's very much not the case. Uh, another important thing that happened during that period is that during that sort of peace dividend period when they the budget slightly went down at the end of the Cold War is that the arms manufacturers companies like Raytheon and, and Lockheed Martin sort of saw the writing on the wall, even though they knew that the spending would come back. And they did they did things like, let's go out and one, lobby to expand NATO into these Eastern European countries. And then two, let's make a whole lot of arms deals with these with these countries. And so like countries like Poland and Hungary and you know the Czechs, et cetera. Um, and so it, there's a former, he also saw a lot of mergers of those companies during this period, but there's a former CEO of uh, Lockheed Martin, who was actually one of the main architects of this named Norm Augustine. And, you know, he's noted because he threw a, a, a lavish party for Hungarian polit politicians at the Budapest Opera House to get to basically like coax them into like joining NATO and supporting Hungary joining NATO. And so that's, that's an important piece of what happened. Clinton's also known as uh, one of the you know presidents who bring about like this neoliberal austerity piece, and so in that these these you know arms manufacturing companies are able to take advantage of that. Yeah, and again, that goes back to the whole idea at the founding of NATO of military spending as a as a form of economic stimulus, and Clinton's all in on that. You know, uh, and and this is when you start to see the the expansion of NATO. Um, I don't have the chart here when countries came in, but you know uh, Clinton is the first president to expand NATO, and remember George Bush. Uh, George Herbert Walker, George, yeah, George Herbert Walker Bush, and uh, Daddy and Bush, Baker, Daddy Bush, Daddy Bush, and Jim Baker had, if not assured, told Gorbachev and Yeltsin that the U.S. wasn't going to expand eastward, and like we've said many times already, um, Robert McNamara warned against that, George Frost Cannon warned against that, Henry Kissinger warned against that, William Perry, who was Clinton's Secretary of Defense, got into a, a fight. At a, at a meeting with Al Gore over the expansion of NATO. And this is when the idea that Russia was either a regional or even a third rate power uh, really kind of uh, took root. And Putin, I mean, that that was part of, you know, when Putin became president, that was kind of part of his, you know, worldview. The United States doesn't respect us. They want to encroach on our territory. Again, you don't have to agree with anything Putin did to say that, okay, you know, uh, this is the way international politics is played. And clearly uh, the United States in the aftermath of the Cold War, when the Soviet Union had fallen apart, is expanding this, this alliance, which really doesn't have a purpose. I've always argued that Kosovo was actually to give NATO something to do. Uh, and it is clearly a, uh, uh, an economic stimulus as well. Uh, you know, I'm Bill, Bill Hartung, I mean, you really, you know, listen to that. But, uh, you know, there was a, a committee uh, for the expansion of NATO created and funded by the various defense uh, uh, contractors and manufacturers. You cannot underestimate or understate the role of military spending in American economic decisions. 
Uh, I mean, right now, you know, uh, Biden's Build Back Better plan is in shambles. Uh, any promises to reduce student debt are out the window. Uh, COVID funding for testing and vaccines has run out. And the military budget climate, is climate, anything that climate, climate, yeah, mitigate climate funding. Yeah. And military spending just goes up and up and up and up. And, you know, as, as Hartung said, the budget, the military budget is about 800 billion. The national security budget, when you expand it out into areas associated uh, with the military bases and the war on terrorism, things like that, it's more like 1.3 trillion. Right. Um, which is the size of the entire bill that Manchin once passed, right, over 10 years. So um, you cannot understate how vital. And this is a this is a creation of NATO liberals. This is a democratic policy as much as anyone else's. Uh, Reagan and Trump were no different than uh, the Democrats on this one, even with Reagan's massive military. Reagan essentially reverted to military Keynesianism in his first term. Uh, but th th this is clearly, you know, you can't understate how important it is to to see military spending as an economic program, as an economic stimulus program. Before we leave the claims, I don't know if you have anything to say. I do want to talk about Haiti because nobody ever does. And we've talked about it a little bit on this. But, you know, um, last year we had those horrific scenes at the border, which looked like something out of, you know, 1850s with uh, ICE agents. And, you know, I don't know if it was National Guard or not. Like on horseback, on horseback, beating and whipping Haitians, you know, who are trying to cross the border. At the same time, the United States is giving Ukrainians, you know, essentially almost free passes, right? To, to so get like a hundred thousand Ukrainians, hundred thousand Ukrainians, in, right, right. Uh, but Haiti, I think, is important because um, Haiti has traditionally just been a, a horrific place. It was run by the Duvalier family. The United States intervened in Haiti in the nineteen teens. FDR claimed he wrote the Haitian Constitution. The United States took over the Haitian bank and the charnel houses. So it's it's always been essentially a, an American colony. Uh, however, they had a brief moment of, of democratic uh, enlightenment when uh, a priest named Jean-Bertrand Aristide took over. Uh, and Aristide uh, obviously wasn't well received by the United States. And, and the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, tried to get rid of him. And in the 1992 campaign, Clinton attacked George Herbert Walker Bush for uh, his policies on Haiti. So you have a president attacking an incumbent Republican for doing something, all right? Kind of like uh, Biden attacked Trump for his policy on immigration. And then he totally reversed it, right? <laughs> um, so this is what Clinton did. He attacked Bush. However, when Clinton became president, he essentially you know, doubled down. He put uh, uh, basically a blockade on Haiti, allowed no Haitians into the U.S., even though there were vicious paramilitary groups and hit squads there, the infamous Tauntauns, Makuts, going after human rights and labor activists. Uh, U.S. trade rose by 50 percent in Haiti as American corporations poured in. And then in 1994, Haitian generals led a coup to depose Aristide. And uh, U.S. oil companies began supplying oil to the new junta there. And uh, Clinton uh, did send troops in to restore Aristide, but uh, less than a year later, the U.S. forced him again out of power. That's Clinton uh, claiming that his five-year term has expired, even though he had been in exile for three years because of the first coup that Clinton did nothing uh, to reverse. So uh, if you look at Haiti, it's kind of a microcosm of 
for, for both Bill and then Hillary when she became uh, Secretary uh, of State. And, um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, is, is follows in the footsteps of, of this kind of established policies. I don't know if you want to say anything else about the Clintons because there's a lot more, but. Just a, um, the other thing to note is, I believe Milosevic was actually eventually thrown out in the last yes, year of the Clinton administration. And, you know, very, very similar to what we see in a lot of these places, but what you mentioned with Haiti is that, you know, the corporations also poured into, into Serbia and there's like yeah. a whole lot of austerity that happens. You know, yeah. Serbia was essentially like a, in, in a socialist government and, you know, the economic hitmen, whatever you want to call them, basically just like get away with all that. Yeah. Actually, now, since you mentioned that, this is, this is worth mentioning because Charles Krauthammer, uh, who died a couple of years ago, was a really hard right wing uh, commentator. He wrote for the Washington Post. I mean, he wasn't like Trump crazy. I think he hated Trump, actually, but he was he was far out there. But he wrote about the Clinton doctrine in 1999. And um, it's funny because he uses what you just mentioned in Serbia as an example. And he talked about how, you know, Clinton said he was going to go out and bring his kind of the humanitarian intervention idea, or we're going to bring democracy and freedom to the world and stuff like that. And he said that, you know, Clinton justified the bombing of Serbia uh, in order to oppose ethnic cleansing and the slaughter of innocent people. Crowdhammer, of all people, not the NATO liberals who love human rights and humanitarian intervention, uh, Crowdhammer pointed out that in 1995, Croatia, which was on the U.S.'s good side, Traditionally, from World War One on, like in the first Balkans War in like 1913, Serbia and Russia were on the same side and Croatia and Germany were on the same side. So there's traditionally Serbia has been attached to, to, to Russia or to the Soviet Union. It's always been seen that way. In August of 1995, Croatia attacked uh, a region uh, called Krajina, where Serbs had been the, the principal population, the majority population for like over 500 years. The Croatians drove out over 150,000 Serbs, which was the largest ethnic cleansing of that entire period, bigger than Kosovo, right? Investigators with a war crime. And, Bo and Bosnia. And Bosnia. War crimes, uh, investigators for a war crimes tribunal said that the campaign was carried out with brutality, wanton murder, and indiscriminate shelling of civilians, right? The tribunal wanted to bring indictments against Croatian officials, right? Clinton did nothing. Clinton did nothing. Clinton uh, encouraged it. Uh, Croatia was advised by retired American officers who went there to fight against the Serbs. Nothing. Clinton didn't denounce it. No sanctions, no bombing, nothing about ethnic cleansing, uh, nothing. He talked about the, the courageous Croatians who fought back against the Serbs, not about the atrocities uh, they committed. That's from Charles Krauthammer, right? And so the idea that somehow humanitarian interventions, which is a, a incredibly Orwellian term. Like I said, Putin probably thinks that, or you know, I don't think he thinks that, but that's kind of how Putin is trying to sell what he's doing right now. I'm going there to denazify these people and save my people and all that kind of bullshit, right? And nobody buys it, and they shouldn't. In the same yeah. way, nobody should buy the U.S. intervention in Iraq or Kosovo. It's, it's interesting to note, I, I think it was in that New York Times piece, where 20 years of Putin's reign over Russia is that he's like, been preoccupied with the 25 million ethnic Russians, which are actually in in countries that are you know that are former Soviet republics or or maybe even beyond that, and that his his whole thing is that he wants to go and you know rescue those people. I, I'm not yeah. pro Putin, and I'm not saying that thing that's valid, but it, it is like a part of his like sort of narrative. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I, I've heard so many different people get inside the mind of Putin and tell, talk about what he's thinking. And, you know, and keep in mind, too, with Clinton, I mean, Clinton is the guy who gave us, you know, uh, Madeleine Albright. I believe um, was Susan Rice in his administration before Obama's, wasn't she? Didn't she get in? So we had the power. Both, I think, got their starts. Right. Um, and and uh, so um, one more thing uh, from Krauthammer. I love using right wingers who, you know, actually see through the, the BS, you know, because, you know, how we feel about liberals here. I mean, I mean, some of our best friends are liberals. So, you know, I mean, a lot of good people when they meet well. And, you know, I love to go to brunch with them, you know. And But, you know, if you're in a barroom brawl, probably not the people you want around. What's, what's big? What did Bill Bay- they probably give them some nice tote bags, I bet. Tote bags. What did Bill Haywood say about liberals? What a high drinks? What was it? A uh, liberal is the person who leaves the room when a fight breaks yeah, out. Yeah, when a fight breaks out, they're the first people to leave the room. Yeah. Big Bill a bar- from the IWW. Yeah, Big Bill. In a, in a barroom brawl, you probably don't want the majority report guys or, or the guy or liberals or the Jacobin guys around. You know, I got to believe that, you know, like I think with one arm, I'm better. I'm, I'm, I'm in better shape than having those guys. But, ouch. 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 <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, actually, Jacobin and, and the nation are kind of one now. So. Uh, but this is, again, uh, Krauthian, uh, who's talking about Haiti, right? And he says, Haiti turns dictatorial, and the killing of regime opponents continues unsolved and uncurbed. The Clinton administration remains unmoved. Indeed, it seems quite inclined to cover up the current horrors. Why? Because an American-stalled regime is doing the dirty work. As Franklin Roosevelt said of another dictator in the Caribbean, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, Right. You know, and then Krauthammer finishes the essence of foreign policy is deciding which son of a bitch to support, which to oppose. In 1941, Hitler, Stalin, Brest Effer Mouse, Mosul Ortega, blah, blah, blah. This is Bill Clinton and, and Hillary as Secretary of State. Uh, you know, we're not going to give, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but it's, it's kind of the same song, same old song. And so, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the Clinton foreign policy record is, is heavily militarist. Increases in defense funding in the aftermath of the so-called peace dividend, uh, interventions in Haiti, interventions in uh, uh, Serbia, war against Iraq, continued sanctions and, and, and uh, airstrikes against Iraq, expansion of NATO, giving NATO a, uh, a, the enlargement policy, giving NATO uh, a larger role, uh, expanding NATO to I forget how many countries by the time he was uh, done. So um, this, you know, kind of engagement and enlargement is clearly this is what we're talking about. We're talking about NATO liberals. And I wouldn't even talk about the WTO and NAFTA, uh, you know, which I don't know if you want to say a few words about those, because those are really crucial. And those might be the most important elements in Clinton's foreign policy. Right. Yeah. The World Trade Organization and the North America Free Trade Agreement uh, were like free. You know, one was an institution aimed at growing out the sort of world economy, the global economy, but it's really, it was just a vehicle to bring about like austerity and roll back, you know, environmental regulations and labor, labor rights and things like that. And like all the countries that sort of came under it, you know, you could actually talk about how, you know, they toppled, partially toppled Milosevic so that things like the, you know, free trade within the world trade organizations sort of umbrella would like kind of be pulled into that. I think Chomsky actually talks about that. It talks about how Serbia was one of the last holdouts of not in sort of Western sphere of influence. Um, same thing with the North American Free Trade Agreement was where it turned, you know, from Canada to, to Mexico uh, into one big free trade zone. And it, it's a very important piece. 
And besides scenes like rogue states, as they call them, which we're holding out against this sort of American Western hegemony, is that we also see a lot of street protest movements um, around the world resisting that neoliberal free trade project as well. Important thing to uh, note. The Battle of Seattle took place when Clinton was president. You know? Yep. Yep. Very and, important. Uh, you know, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to say this without offending people, but I probably won't be able to. Um, intervention generally, it occurs for materialist reasons, right? And so liberals want to put kind of a, a kind face on it and they want to talk about, you know, humanitarian intervention or, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of people recently talking about toxic masculinity, you know, as, as the reason for, for this current crisis in Ukraine. Right? I mean, if you believe that the United States is concerned about the people of Rwanda or Haiti or the toxic masculinity is driving, you know, kind of intervention and militarism, you know, I, I can sell you swampland because it's it's about material interests, it's about economic interests, it's about land, it's about access to resources like natural gas and wheat and fertilizer and oil and copper and land and uh, name the country lithium, you know, rare earth minerals in Afghanistan. Um, that's not to suggest that there aren't multi factors, but no, go ahead. And well, the last other thing is stable markets. Very important piece. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because, I mean, clearly what's happening right now is obviously badly destabilized the world economy, right? We're seeing that right now. Um, uh, you know, clearly the price of oil has gone up, which means the price of gas has gone up. Uh, there's a good chance you'll see shortages of things like wheat and fertilizer um, into, uh, you know, in, in other parts of the world, which could lead to protests and things like that. Uh, but just keep in mind that, that you know, um, there's a lot of scenery and a lot of distraction about this. Uh, you know, I love that that cartoon of that meme, which has like, you know, Republican foreign policy and Democratic foreign policy. And it's two drones dropping bombs. Uh, but one of them, you know, is just a regular drone and the other one has a peace sign on it, you know. And that's kind of what we're looking at. So we've kind of talked a lot about Clinton. We, we could do also, we probably should do also on it. Uh, but I think it's time to move to, or unless yeah. you have something to say. Uh, just, I think, I think the kind of Clinton era is actually pretty important. Post-Cold War, Clinton era is very important. Yeah, just, just rereading it last era. night. Like, yeah, just kind of like brushing up, because I, you know, I, I know it fairly well, but then I was like, oh, wow, I kind of forgot about some of this. So now we're going to talk about Barack Obama. Also, probably who we could do a whole show on. I think we should. Uh, we will at some point, both of these guys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, with, with Obama... One, it's a very similar program to the Clinton program. I'll also say that in many ways, it's a continuation of the Bush of the Bush foreign policy. In fact, some of the same players actually stay in the Obama administration. People like Robert Gates once um, once Obama becomes president. But like like we were saying with Clinton, the sort of two key things: one is this idea of NATO expansion, dividing Europe, checking Russia, uh, and you know, I'm going to kind of get into that a little bit. And then the other is when I was look, reading the, the the piece about the Clinton, about the Clinton administration, I was like, they're the, it's, he, he, they're setting themselves up to be the global policemen. They're taking out the rogue states, right? And that's like what Albright and Clinton and all of them are talking about. With Obama, it's a little bit of the same thing, but I actually would call them the global hitmen. Um, and it's, it's really important to note one of the more notable things about the Obama administration is that he actually expanded and normalized the Bush Bush's drone program. So that's like an important piece here. And 
So instead of these like lengthy military engagements, which Bush had sunk us into in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Obama was much more interested in these more like surgical strikes. And so we see an expansion of the, of the drone program. Um, it's, it's actually turned into a functioning bureaucracy. We actually had a show last fall uh, about a person named Daniel Hale, who's a whistleblower, who actually had been a, um, a drone operator and a, a, a person who worked on the target list. He's in, he's in a, a communication management unit now in uh, prison, I believe in Marion, Illinois. Um, and, and, you know, he, he had kind of blown the whistle on what was happening with uh, this, with the drone program. Um, and so that is an important piece of Obama's foreign policy, this sort of going morphing from the policeman to the hitman. Um, and then uh, another piece of this is that there's actually some conflict, um, some clashes between his, his secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, and Obama. Obama was way less interested in this idea of lengthy military engagements, flexing American muscle, where, where Hillary was much more into that. And so when we kind of, when we see the Arab Spring happen, and then we see Gaddafi crack down on, uh, we see Gaddafi uh, crack down on the Arab Spring, then we see NATO make an intervention. But the British and the French and the Americans eventually leads to the overthrow and death of Gaddafi. Um, and, you know, Hillary is also very much, you know, a, an architect of that. Um, and I want to play a quick video clip of that um, from that period where Hillary is kind of caught in what seems like a hot mic moment uh, back around the around the death of uh, around the death of Gaddafi. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed. Yes, we came, we saw, <laughs> he died. <laughs> so that's our secretary of state, almost uh, first woman president, uh, Hillary Clinton. On the on the death of Muammar Gaddafi, and it's you know it's just like sort of important to point out that here she is like laughing and joking about the death of a person that came from this huge conflict in the country of Libya, which is still in shambles. Oh, um, it's, it's horrific. Yeah, yeah. It's and funny, so, you know, she she caught hell for Benghazi for all the wrong reasons. I mean, they they could have had hearings on Clinton's role in Libya, but the GOP hearings were bullshit. You know. <laughs> But they, there was there was plenty of you know, she had plenty of blood on her hands, but not not because of the embassy, but because of the I mean, yeah, Libya's have had like slave auctions now and things like that. It's just a, a hellhole. Yeah, it's, it's a very dangerous place. Uh, and so, I mean, I I don't have too much to go in with Obama, but I, it's also worth noting that, you know, there's a lot of interventions that happen is sort of teacup wars that happen on Obama's watch. During that, we, that's when we see the 2009 coup in Honduras uh, that was backed by the U.S., where we saw a, a, a dictatorship come in. Uh, it's also notable that we see this you know, horrendous conflict in another one of the most dangerous places in the world, Syria, which includes interventions from the Turks and the Americans and the Iranians and, and the Russians. And you know, with it, during that, that's one of the places where Obama's doing his drone strikes, but then there's also like you know, behind the scenes troops on the ground and the U.S. supporting, you know, different factions, including a faction that's like supportive of Al-Qaeda. Uh, it's, it's important to notice, to note. Uh, and then also during this period is, is we see a lot of, you know, politics around Afghanistan. And it's, and it's important to note that Obama increases actually the number of troops that are in Afghanistan by, the, by like 50, more than 50 percent of what's already there. 
continuing the war against the Taliban, continuing this sort of continuing this escalation. Um, and so this this idea, like like I said, you know, with Clinton, it's very much see they at least frame it as where they're a global policeman trying to you know continue stable markets. By the time we get to Obama, it's it's they're a global hitman trying to take out you know whoever they think might be any kind of threat. And so I, I, that's an important thing. And then we get into Russia and Ukraine, uh, and the Obama administration very gets into this creates this sort of tension with with Putin with the Russians, uh, even like rhetorically. Uh, he is like noted as saying that Russia, he dismissed Russia as a regional power that not pose a major security threat to the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, we continue, we continue to see the NATO expansion. We continue to see, um, you know, this sort of like kind of build up. We see literal Nazis uh, fighting in the separatist regions of Ukraine, you know, backed by a government that's backed by the U.S. in the very least, if not, if not more than that. And that's kind of what leads us to our current situation. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, it's important. Um, in two thousand eight, Obama probably, I would argue, won the nomination because he had come out as as an avowedly anti-war uh, president. You know, and he he uh, you know, Hillary Clinton as a senator voted to authorize uh, the uh, two thousand three invasion of Iraq, and Obama, who was I think still a state senator at the time, had given a speech against it. But um, Obama always said, we're fighting the wrong war. So he wasn't really anti-war. He was anti-Iraq war. He said the right war is in Afghanistan. And you're right. American troop strength was actually at its peak in the Obama years. It actually increased. At one point, I, I want to say about 112,000 troops were there. And so what Obama did was, was you know, slowly de-escalate Iraq, although he said he did have a brief surge. I forget what year it was where he sent more troops in. But um, really ratcheted up the war in Afghanistan, even though the outcome, which we saw last, uh, was it last May, was inevitable, you know? No, and so, August. right. So I think that's obviously, you know, really important, too. It's, it's important to note that, you know, when Obama comes in, he his his what he says, his foreign policy task one is to take out Osama bin Laden. And so yes. he puts the CIA on that. And, you know, it's actually something he also ran against the Republicans on is that they had never taken out Osama bin Laden and we yeah. fought the wrong war. Um, I think the surge that he was over was a little bit of a holdover from when, when Bush was in power because they were already in the midst of that surge. Yeah. But again, you know, um, if you want to look just like NATO liberals as part of NATO, NATO expansion under Clinton and Obama was significant. So they, they own a, a huge part of that. And it was actually a Republican administration of Bush and Baker, which had told uh, Gorbachev that they wouldn't do that. Uh, I do want to say a couple of things about uh, Obama in the interest of, of equilibrium. Um, he did broker the Iran nuclear agreement, which Trump abrogated. And then he also did kind of begin to normalize relations with Cuba, which, again, Trump has tried to countermand. And Biden has not done anything on either of those issues to, to change Trump's policy. Um, so I think that's important too. There was an article in the Nation in early 2017 that was looking looking at some books about the Obama foreign policy and looking back on Obama, and uh, they make a sort of deal about how Obama came in as this more cosmopolitan figure who realized the U.S. wasn't going to be the center of you know global politics anymore. Um, but then also he kind of continues with that. NATO liberal program. Like he doesn't, it doesn't deviate that much. He puts people in his administration, which are, you know, from the Bush era, they're from, you know, they put, he puts Hillary Clinton in. 
it's like just a kind of important thing to note. And and then he also continues the sort of tension with with Russia. And what we're seeing today, I mean, you know, it has some of the same characters, right? Uh, Susan Rice, Susan Power, um, Burr, who's the CIA director. Uh, Blinken was what I think Assistant Secretary of State or Deputy Secretary of State. So essentially, you know, like just kind of Obama brought a bunch of the Clinton people on board. And now Biden, who was the vice president, obviously, at the time, is bringing a bunch of uh, Biden was a big advocate of NATO expansion, too, uh, is bringing a bunch of Obama's people on board. So there's a great deal of continuity. And, Clinton, and Clinton's people, too. And Clinton's people. There's a great deal of continuity here. And I mean, our long, you know, we're talking a lot here. Uh, and I mean, I think that what we want to show is like how what we're seeing today, uh, Biden's, you know, kind of uh, line in the sand, you know, starting in January, where he began to talk about Putin and you know, uh, um, really kind of ratchet up the tensions there. You know, I'm not saying he provoked Putin to, to invade uh, Ukraine. Clearly, there was there was no attempt made to mediate this. And clearly, I don't care, you know, it's not pro-Putin at all to suggest that the, the, the role of NATO and NATO expansion, especially NATO expansion, taking, taking in uh, Ukraine and Georgia was incendiary and was provocative and it didn't need to happen. That's, it would have been easy to say, no, Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. There are other elements of that too, but it would have been easy to do that. Biden didn't, Biden hasn't said anything about negotiations and now his alleged slip of the tongue or not, who knows? He, uh, um, you know, is essentially saying Putin has to go. Also worth pointing out, because remember how liberals were just appalled and aghast at Trump's immigration policies. Uh, Obama, I believe, deported more people than Trump, didn't he? Or it was close. And then uh, Biden is maintaining a lot of Trump's border policies, too. I think Obama deported more people than every president, modern president before him. Obama deporter in chief, right? Right. Yeah. So, okay. and, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm not trying to suggest that Trump and Nixon and Reagan were better than any of these guys. Good God, no, they're horrific and they're they're war criminals. But but so are the rest. Right. And it's also it's also important to note up until maybe this week, Biden hadn't actually lifted. I think it's called Title right. 23. Uh, which allow it's a it's a COVID related policy, right. but like but but like Biden hadn't actually lifted that to let people from you know south of the border across the yeah. border, except for the Ukrainians, yeah. except for the Ukrainians. Yeah, and that's really going to be interesting to see, you know, because I mean the media doesn't really care. The media wants to fight a freaking war in Russia, but um, you know the the uh, contradictions and the double standards now between Ukrainian immigration and you know Latin American immigration. You know, the difference there is the United States has destroyed Latin America. That's why people are escaping. And and uh, but, you know, Iraq, I mean, to me, you know, as somebody who studies this, this is what I do. This is what I study, U.S. foreign policy and wars in the military. And the two in the, in the so-called in the post-Cold War, the post-World War II era, the two conflicts that stand out for their ferocity, viciousness and brutality are clearly Vietnam and Iraq. And those were both done by liberal Democrats. You know, those were uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. And then the sanctions regime was Bill Clinton. The war, the intervention itself was obviously Bush and Baker, but the sanctions regime and the air power uh, in the 90s was Clinton. And then, of course, the the uh, invasion in 2003 was was Bush Jr. and Cheney. But still, I mean, the, the kind of the two, and, and nothing in Ukraine matches Vietnam. It's not even close now. It's only been a month, but I can't understate what a vicious, brutal war the United States waged in Vietnam. And that was a liberal war. That was the war of the NATO liberals. Um, and the NATO liberals, 
you know, overthrew governments. Uh, they they supported uh, fascist regimes in Greece. They overthrew governments in, in Guatemala and and uh, Iran and and Chile and tried to do it in Cuba. So um, you know, when when you think about that, this is not a Republican Democrat thing, and the issue is much bigger than that. And Biden needs to be held accountable. We don't have the ability to to have any impact on Putin or Zelensky. We just don't. Uh, and like, you know, realistically, we don't really have the power to have any impact on Biden either because the left is so fragmented and fractured and actually pretty, pretty hawkish right now. But, um, you know, if, if we're going to make a difference, it would be here by saying, you know, look, NATO shouldn't be expanded. We, we need some kind of negotiations in, in Ukraine because you know, a lot of Ukrainians and a lot of Russian soldiers too are getting killed. And, uh, you know, and what do we get? We get, uh, uh, I did notice yesterday, though, that the U.S. Navy has now christened a new ship. We now have the USS Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? And I'm sure that will warm liberal hearts all over. Uh, so anyway. Love me, love me, love me. Yeah, we've talked a lot about this. We've been talking about NATO liberals for a while, so we decided to do a deep dive, maybe deeper than we thought we would. Uh, but once you get going on this kind of stuff, it has a momentum of its own. Uh, and I've had people say to me, why don't you ever pick on Republicans? Cause everybody does that. It's easy. Like, you know, like that's, that's what the media is for. Right. Yeah. So I feel like we've picked on Republicans quite a bit. Too, so. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and the attack on liberals from the right is insane. They're calling them Marxist and radicals. And so that's, that's absurd. So you need somebody to go out there and kind of tell you what's what, and, and that's our job. So, uh, but, um, yeah, we've been using the phrase NATO liberals. It seems to be, uh, popular for a lot of people. And so we decided to give you a long historical background on what they are and, you know, uh, the Democratic Party is a party of big business. It's a party of Wall Street. It's a party of the military industrial complex. Don't let them fool you. They want your votes. So every four years they talk about working people and labor and women and African-Americans and all that other kind of stuff. But uh, at, at, at their heart, they are uh, a party of Wall Street and corporate America and the, and the arms weapon, the weapons manufacturers. And, and, they, and they wage just a, as a brutal war against working poor, working class people in this country as they, as they do different forms, but as they do against, you know, people in Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera. Anyway, well, that's an upper. So, yeah. So folks, you have been listening to our love them. their NATO liberals episode. If you like what you hear, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. And then if you want to make a donation and support us, we really could use some new patrons. So check us out on patreon.com backslash green red podcast or make a one-time donation at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And until then, we bid you adieu and ask you all to go make a lot of trouble wherever, however you can. Take care. I cried when we lost the election. Tears, they ran down my spine. And I cried when we lost our Supreme Court As though I'd lost family of mine But I still have faith in the system It's treated me well every time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal And I go to the anti-war rallies Curse Trump and the whole GOP 
Donald loved all eight years of Obama Oh, his message of change spoke to me Sure, Bernie is right about most things But Biden unites us, you'll see So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Can't the rich take their hands off of Congress? The coal tycoon should step aside